This is Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, on the air. Tuning you into the Latino literary renaissance in all its splendor. Interviews, teatro, rap, fiction, poetry, memorias, composer spotlights, and more. Always mas. This is Tony Diaz, El Libro Traficante. You're tuning in to a special edition of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. This is a one-hour special across all of our platforms, focusing on The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. We speak with Sandra on the eve of the Nuestra Palabra 23rd anniversary, but also in conjunction with the National Endowment for the Arts Big Read Campaign. The House on Mango Street was the focus of this year's Big Read campaign. And we're also very happy that two Houston institutions were recipients of those prestigious grants. Lone Star College Houston North received one of the NEA Big Read grants. And also the Alley Theater received a Big Read grant. They also worked together with the Houston Public Library and the Latin American Student Organization at Lone Star College Houston North. Ostensibly, this one-hour special is about implementing the House on Mango Street. And I pause there because typically that's come to mean in a classroom. Yes, this is a good resource for folks who teach at the college level, also high school teachers, and this is even good for folks who are conducting their research if they're in graduate school. But make no mistake, this is also a great tool for folks who are community leaders and they want to bring this book into a community center. Or maybe you're the cool tia or tío that introduces the family to new experiences, inspires them. This could be one way for you to introduce the whole family to the house on Mango Street and perhaps start the family library or replenish it. At the end of the day, our goal is for the house on Mango Street to find a home in your home and to empower all of our community members to spread the word. And I do want to stress, yes, Sandra Cisneros's work fits the highest possible standards of any educational discipline that we're aware of. <laughs> And that we can devise. Additionally, make no mistake, you as a member of our community are an expert about us and our community. You are empowered to take this book and with your experiences, reflect on what it means to you and create that bridge to your friends, your family members, your community. So I say all that because I don't want you to be intimidated and think, I don't have an advanced degree. I can't possibly be deputized to spread the word about this book that I love. No, you are the exact right person to introduce someone to this book so that it will touch their hearts and imaginations the way this book has touched yours and the way this book has shaped our hearts and imaginations. That's all we ask for. We hope that we can unite to make that a little easier for everybody. Of course, I want to thank the entire family of Nuestra Palabra Latino Writers Heavener Say for coming together 
for over two decades to do that work in different ways. And to put this radio show together, I want to thank, of course, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes our shows. And as we hit all our other platforms, Roxana Guzman helps us as well. And we have teams that have been here day in, day out for decades. I want to thank all of them. I want to thank you for tuning in and supporting the work that we do. Of course, this transmits on the FM platform on 90.1 FM KPFT your community radio station. If you can, we appreciate if you go to the website, kpft.org, and make a donation in the name of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say, so we can do our part to keep this wonderful experiment in free speech, make it sure that it keeps going for 50 more years. And if you want to catch more of our archive shows, you can visit nuestrapalabra.org. R-G. During this broadcast, you're also going to get to listen to two readings. One of them is an evening of Chicano poetry that was organized by the Library of Congress in 1986. Sandra Cisneros will read the poem Velorio. That's the subject of our interview because that becomes the vignette, the three sisters, in the final version of The House on Mango Street, we get to talk about how the poems influence the prose and influence the upcoming opera. I love that because that just shows you how versatile her talent is. She's navigated all these different art forms and keeps pushing herself. And then we're going to close the show with one reading that's really special to us because it is Sandra Cisneros reading an excerpt from the house on Mango Street during a fundraiser for the Libro Traficantes when the 2012 Libro Traficante caravan passed through San Antonio on its way from Houston, Texas to Tucson, Arizona as myself and four other veterans of Nuestra Palabra, Brian Parras, Liana Lopez, Lupe Mendez, and Laura Razo, united to create the Libro Traficante caravan and smuggle back into Arizona the works that were on the brilliant curriculum that Arizona officials banned. Yes, if you've forgotten or didn't know, Arizona officials banned Mexican-American studies. One of those books was The House on Mango Street. And we're so happy that we all teamed up to overturn that unfair, un-American law, and Mexican-American studies is no longer banned in Arizona or anywhere in the country, and we think that that's a fitting note to end on, to signal just the amount of work that Sandra does behind the scenes to support others and to make sure that all of us have a voice. Thank you so much for joining us in this endeavor. Stay tuned, enjoy, and spread the word. This is Tony Diaz on behalf of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. Thank you. Eva pasando el trapo sobre la mesa y está cuidando que todo brille como una perla. Cuando llegue la patrona que no se vuelva a quejar. No sea cosa que la acuse de ilegal José atiende los jardines, parecen de 
deja una troca vieja sin la licencia No importa si fue taxista allá en su tierra natal Eso no cuenta para el tío Sam El hielo anda suelto por esas calles Nunca se sabe cuándo nos va a tocar Lloran los niños, lloran a la salida Lloran al ver que no llegará mamá birthday to us, to Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We're chatting with our dear friend and uh, Chicana American author icon Sandra Cisneros on the 23rd birthday of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. I wish I could claim this is exactly how it was planned, but hey, it was our destiny. Un abrazo grande, Sandra. <laughs> Felicidades. You know, it's great. It's great to think about 23 years. Wow. You're already an adult over 21. <laughs> right. Como pasa Amazing. tiempo. <laughs> and, and actually, when I think about where I was at 23, I was like already <laughs> starting House on Manga Street. I started at 22 or 23, around that age. So you were yeah. in the writing process of it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Like my uh, my. First year at Iowa, my second semester, I believe. Was that my first year, second semester? You know, I don't know. Everything gets a little bit blurry when I think back. 
but I'm pretty sure it was like the second semester, first my first year at Iowa. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Because um, you know there was a, a there was we were very crowded because there was a poet who was teaching a guest writer who only wanted poets who wrote in fixed verse. So nobody wanted to take that workshop, so we all bundled <laughs> up into the other workshop. And then I was in this very crowded workshop, I remember, and um, I was with Bill Matthews, William Matthews, and um, and then it was, I think it was his seminar class. I think wow. it was him, that, yeah, that we were talking about houses, and like, you know, I... I remember being comfortable with him enough that even though I was not supposed to be writing prose, I shared some prose pieces uh, that was sparked by the discussion of houses and, of course, my own crisis of realizing, oh, my God, I'm, I don't have the house. I'm a different class from everybody in here. And I'd never, you know, I never, you know, how we never discuss class in the United States. Uh, so it was suddenly a big slap in my face in graduate school to realize as I'm practically leaving my education that I suddenly realized the class difference that I am. And with that class difference, you know, the color difference that I am than everyone else, the gender difference, you know, I had to start writing about things that no one else could tell me I was wrong. That's how house was born. And originally, you know, I started as a memoir when I was 22 or 23. And, uh, you know, it went a different route as I left Iowa and started working in Chicago as teacher, uh, first part-time teacher, and then eventually a full-time teacher. And, you know, I, I was working with these alternative high school students and, you know, they had left such incredible lives compared to me. I was just a little cupcake compared to them. So I took their stories, I put it in my remembered neighborhood, and it went a whole different, different, different direction. And then, you know, as I was writing it, I remember I sent it to Revista Chicano Riqueña, and Nick saw some of the early stories and said, do you have more? I said, yeah, but most of them are in my head. <laughs> so he goes, well, give me the rest, and like, we'll publish it. And he had, you know, I had poems also about some of the same things. I think I shared it with him. He said, well, write more. So the whole idea was that I was going to be writing companion poems. Some of the poems had were written while I was at Iowa, and the chapters were written later. Like, for example, Velorio, mm. I wrote that at Iowa, and it was part of my graduate thesis. But the story, I wrote it in Athens when I was uh, you know, living in, in, in traveling in Greece on my, uh, uh, at my 28th year of my life. So it was later that I wrote the story that matched wow. with the poem. And, and by then, you know, I only had a couple of poems, maybe one or two only that matched the story. I think Valorio was one. I'd have to go through the pages and see which is the other one that matches the, the book. But uh, I basically, uh, a lot of times I didn't have a, a story. I would just have a line or a title, as the case with the one about the three women. You know, I, I dreamt that line. They came with the one that blows an obvious, you know, that line I dreamt. And it came to me as I was waking, and I repeated it and said, oh, I wonder where that will take me. And I was in Greece, so I'm, I'm sure I was thinking of the three fates. And uh, I was very... In, enamored of Greek mythology and the space that I was at and the history. So, you know, it was uh, conducive to follow an idea of the, the three fates. But, of course, you know, they're also in my mind, especially as I'm reworking them now at the opera, 
es uh, las tres las tres uh, curanderas brujas uh, intuitives wise women you know what we would call you know uh, you know that back then they'd be the oracles of Delphi mm -hmm. and nowadays we call them you know call me at this 800 number ESP <laughs> you know so I I saw them as uh, figures of uh, You know, with and you know, maybe back then they were they they came from my being in Greece, but now I see them more as being mujeres uh, indígenas. That's how I visualize them now. This is a recording of Sandra Cisneros reading her poem Velorio. It was for an evening of Chicano poetry organized by the Library of Congress in 1986. My thanks to the Library of Congress, especially to Gwendolyn Brooks for her invitation to read here. Uh, growing up as a library kid myself, it is indeed a great honor to be here. By way of introduction, I would like to read a, a new poem. His Story. I was born under a crooked star So says my father. And this perhaps explains his sorrow. An only daughter whom no one came for and no one chased away. It is an ancient fate, a family trait we trace back to a great aunt no one mentions. Her sin was beauty. She lived mistress, died solitary. There is as well the cousin with the famous, how shall I put it, profession. She ran off with the colonel and soon after the army payroll. And of course, grandmother's mother who died a death of voodoo There are others. For instance, my father explains in the Mexican papers a girl with both my names was arrested for audacious crimes that began by disobeying fathers. Also, and here he pauses, the Cubano who sells him shoes says he too knew a Sandra Cisneros who was three times cursed a widow. You see, an unlucky fate is mine to be born woman in a family of men. Six sons, my father groans, all home, and one female gone. I would like to read a poem from my very first book, which was printed a long time ago, and seems almost of another time. It was a chapbook, a part of a very spectacular Chicano chapbook series that developed in the 70s, in great part uh, through two people, Lorna de Cervantes, it was her press through her kitchen table efforts, and Gary Soton. This book uh, is part of that wonderful series that ended. Uh, an era perhaps that ended, and the books have all become uh, uh, rare books 
but I'd like to read a book, a poem from that book, from that time. Its title is in Spanish. It's called Velorio, which uh, translates wake. Velorio. You laughing, Lucy, and she calls us in, your mother. Rachel, me, you, I remember, and the living room dark for our eyes to get used to. That was the summer, Lucy, remember? We played on the back porch where rats hid under, and bad boys passed to look and look at us, and we look back. Lucy, think how it was. Rachel, me, you, we fresh from sun and dirty, the living room pink, the paint chip blue beneath, so bright for our eyes to get used to. And in rows and rows, the kitchen chairs facing front, where in a corner is a satin box with a baby in it, who is your sister, Lucy, your mama not crying, saying, stay, pray to Jesus, that baby in a box like a valentine. And I, thinking it is wrong, us in our raw red ankles and mosquito legs. Rachel, wanting to go back out again. You, sticking one dirty finger in, said, cold, cold. The living room, pink, Lucy, and your hair smelling sharp like corn. For a southern man. Bill, I don't do laundry, and I don't believe in love. I believe in bricks and broken windshields, and maybe my fist. But you're safe to take the road this one time, buddy. I'm getting old. I've learned two things to let go clean as kite string, and to never wash a man's clothes. These are my rules. I want to learn to say, see you next Tuesday, then drive away, the windshield whole, the rear view empty of regrets, though now and then there are exceptions. What I remember of a room at dusk and how your bones continued from a single strand, finger, knuckle, spine. To love too much, to leave behind a neon sign in northern Georgia, pink and blinking the pines. That laundromat in Landis, famous for the way it made you sad, the blonde waitress at Jay's diner, counting passing cars, dreaming of the one that got away. This is from a new book called The Rodrigo Poems, and it's due out this year from Third Woman Press at uh, Bloomington, Indiana. A woman cutting celery is savage because a car door slams, but he does not come home. Miles after thoughts 
have turned from worry, have turned to rage. A car door slams, and she is cutting salary and more salary, but no familiar stumble of the key, nor crooked tug and coy apology, no blurred kiss to comfort this cruel hour and quit those sometime fears to sleep. Surely love has strayed before, love has come and love has gone before, and love has been away before, but ultimately stays. It must be the errant lover of the girl across the way who arrives at such an independent hour, whose rude feet startle gravel beyond the borders of begonias asleep under the back porch light. Not here. A thin blonde vein rises from the corner of her jaw like a crack in a porcelain plate. A car door slams, but he does not come home. This is how the story begins. From the same book, The So-and-Sos. Your other women are well-behaved, your magnolias and simones, those with the fine, brave skin like violin and bones like roses. They bloom nocturnal and are done with nary a clue behind them, nary a clue, save one or two. Here is the evidence of them. Occasionally, the plum print of a mouth on porcelain. And here, the strands of mermaids discovered on the bathtub shores. And now and again, tangled in the linen, love's smell, musky, unmistakable, terrible as tin. But love is nouveau. Love is liberal as a general and allows. Love with no say-so in these matters, no X, nor claim, nor title, shuts one wicked eye and courteously abides. I cannot out with such civility. I don't know how to go, not mute as snow. Without my dust and clatter, I am no so-and-so. I who arrived deliberate as Tuesday, without my hat and shoes, with one rude black tattoo and purpose thick as pumpkin. One day I'll dangle from your neck, public as a jewel. One day I'll write my name on everything, as certain as a trail of bread. I'll leave my scent of smoke. I'll paint my wrist. You'll see, you'll see. I will not out so easily. I was here, as loud as trumpet, as real as pebble in the shoe, a tiger tooth, a definite voodoo. Let me bequeath a single pomegranate seed, 
a telltale clue. I want to be like you, a who, and let them bleed. This is from the house on Mango Street. I just would like to read one piece from that book. And uh, the girl child of that book uh, is the persona, and I think this piece best exemplifies who she is. It's called My Name. In English, my name means hope. In Spanish, it means too many letters. It means sadness. It means waiting. It is like the number nine, a muddy color. It is the Mexican records my father plays on Sunday mornings when he is shaving. Songs like sobbing. It was my great-grandmother's name, and now it is mine. She was a horsewoman, too, born like me in the Chinese year of the horse, which is supposed to be bad luck if you're born female. But I think this is a Chinese lie because the Chinese, like the Mexicans, don't like their women strong. My great-grandmother. I would have liked to have known her a wild horse of a woman, so wild she wouldn't marry until my great-grandfather threw a sack over her head and carried her off, just like that, as if she were a fancy chandelier. That's the way he did it. And the story goes, she never forgave him. She looked out the window her whole life, the way so many women sit their sadness on an elbow. I wonder if she made the best with what she got, or was she sorry because she couldn't be all the things she wanted to be? My great-grandmother, I have inherited her name, but I don't want to inherit her place by the window. At school, they say my name funny, as if the syllables were made out of tin and hurt the roof of your mouth. But in Spanish, my name is made out of a softer something, like silver. Not quite thick as sister's name, Magdalena, which is uglier than mine. Magdalena, who at least can come home and become Nenny. But I am always Esperanza. I would like to baptize myself under a new name a name more like the real me, the one nobody sees. Esperanza as Lisandra, or Maritza, or Zizi the X. Yes, something like Zizi the X will do. I would like to close for a very special poem for a friend of mine who is here. It's written for another woman, but I think uh, she understands 
why this poem is for her. It was written during a time uh, when I was living abroad. It's called Letter to Ilona from the South of France. Ilona, I have been thinking and thinking of you since I went away, dragging you with me across the south of France and into Spain, then back again. I ran away to an island off the coast, tiny jewels of field beneath the jewel of sky, and lost myself one night in crumpled poppies. Odd for such a city poet like me to find such comfort in the dark, I who always feared it. And yet, I loved the way it wrapped me like a skin. All those stars, Ilona, and wind, field illumined by those poppies. Yes, that was good. I wanted to bring that back forever, wrap it in a velvet cloth to show you the wind from Africa, the field of poppies, the way my bicycle hummed the distance. And for me, Alona, who has never known the liberty of darkness, who has never let go fear, how do I explain a joy this elemental, simple, like your daughter's hand outlined in crayon? And yet, I think you understand my first sky full of stars, you who are a woman, the wind from Africa, the field of poppies, the night I let slip from my shoulders to wander darkness like a man, Ilona. My heart stood up and sang. Thank you. They're the wise women, you know? Like sometimes you have a whole family of them and they're like comadres, but they're hermanas. And, you know, um, I just see them as being um, women of great strength that know their power mm -hmm. and that have brought, been brought up with, you know, not forgetting the uh, teachings of women and being in touch with their uh, their intuitive energies. That, that I think, you know, they're older ladies because, you know, I, I, I find now that I'm 66, a lot of things that uh, I wish I had learned earlier, gifts that I have that I didn't know I had, you know, because I wasn't raised in Mexico. I wasn't mm. raised in the little hamlet where my abuelos were born. You know, if I had been raised there, I would understand. Oh, this es que esta es un viente. Ella es una intuitiva, es una corandera. I could have gone those routes, you know, if I had stayed in Mexico because I have certain gifts, you know, and, and I think we all have them, but we have to develop them. And I think I developed it more in uh, being an empath. You know, we're all empaths as artists. And mm. that's the route I went. So I didn't become a curandera. You know, I'm not a healer. I'm not a... a I, I don't a know about that. I don't know about that. Well, I, I'm not by profession. <laughs> awesome. But gotcha. I, think, I think as artists, we do all of those things. We heal and we right. prophesize. We are visionary as artists. And, uh, you know, we really are like the the shamans of our of our society from the work we do by being so 
uh, by channeling and, and opening our hearts and, you know, opening our hearts to uh, our highest potential, to the loose, what I call la loose. You know, we are channelers of that light. And in the same way that healers and, and visionaries are, we, ha- we are not, we can't say that we're, we're healers, but we do heal. This is such a wonderful present to Nuestra Palabra. You navigated the classic crafts of the Western world and our indigenous crafts to create this beautiful book that has withstood the test of time. And maybe that chapter two, what happens there también es que las señoras, uh, you know, they anoint this the young lady. I mean, this part of the book is such an important turning point. Yes, it is. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's a, it's a, it's you know waking her up to her mission mm. and to her power, and you know we 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 don't always get that in life. You know, if you if you you know, it's these women were uh, the ones that gave her direction. Uh, they play more and a stronger part in the opera that I'm working on. Tell uh, us about that. They have that. a stronger wow. role. Yeah, I'm working with Derek Bramell, and it's really nice to reread the book and go back to it because, you know, there were some decades when I, I didn't want to read House on Wanda Street one more time or I was going to explode. <laughs> but now I'm working on it so much, and I'm seeing so many things that I did intuitively. You know, I had my bruja moments when I was writing, nice. and I would make things up and it's because my heart was so open. And I was doing it with, with my corazón for my students. I wasn't trying to become a bestseller. I was doing it for love. And when we do acts of love, we open ourselves to the, our highest potential. Mm. When we do something um, in in the name of love on behalf of those we love, with no self-gain, we are at our highest power. And I think that's what was going on with me without me being aware of it. Mm. You know, that's what was happening. I was just channeling my highest self. I was open to the animas and my guardians and my ancestors. And so a lot of things that I wrote that didn't make sense have, you know, happened. I didn't intend them to. Uh, I just was writing it from a purely intuitive place. And uh, now that I'm reworking it, you know, like I'm I'm expanding it, uh, developing it for the opera, uh, the the three sisters have a more... Uh, profound wow. uh, uh, position in, in development of the story. Yeah, they're really important. And it's so great to come back and say, hey, I really like this book. It's held up <laughs> and I'm not so hard on it anymore. You know, that was always like rolling my eyes when I was younger thinking, well, I could have done better. No, <laughs> I did a good job. I really like it now. And I, it's a lot of humor and uh, profundity. And, uh, you know, I like that I was able to capture uh, complexity mm-hmm. of, you know, so many issues in a way that I could get past the guards. It's a lot of about sexuality in this book. And I've done it in such a subtle way that I can get past, you know, readers who are not, that are not mature mm-hmm. enough to understand that are más inocentes, you know, that it won't offend anybody. I never wanted to offend. I never wanted to make fun of anyone. And, you know, now working on the opera, I get to include some people that, you know, I would have written about but I didn't get a chance to because I had to finish the book. There are other oh, wow. characters, other people that I remember. And, you know, I was one of those little girls that I had friends in the neighborhood that was like the old lady across the street with the, <laughs> with the little stubbly mustache that wore a fur coat and little, like, 
funny winter coat all year long. She would, her name was Agnes, and she would always talk to me. They would come and talk to me on my front gate. I just I was friends with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody talked to me, and I talked to everybody. I was just like the mayor, and without really <laughs> being aware that that's what I was. <laughs> you know, I would greet everyone. I had no idea that I did that, and it just came so naturally. I like giving people something, you know, mm. like even if it's just hello or I like your cat. <laughs> I liked giving people something and making them feel better because I knew what it was like to be invisible. You know, I knew how how it, it didn't cost any me anything to say, hey, I like that dress to some viejita. And so I remembered how alone I felt being the new kid. So I went out of my way to uh, mm. to connect, you know. And uh, I think that's why I had so many... Uh, you know, the people that I observed in my neighborhood that I viewed them with uh, positivity and joy. Mm. I think there's a lot of positivity and joy in House on Mongo Street, you know. And I, I, I'm seeing that now and saying, oh, here's my younger self. And, uh, you know, I think uh, sometimes to be inclusive to people was something I did because I could see myself as that freaky outsider i recognize that Mm. part of myself and others it's wonderful to kind of track if that's the right word how your imagination is also sorting because velorio is powerful in its own right but it is different than what winds up in prose as the book how far apart were they Uh, you mentioned they were a few years uh, apart you know i wrote one in graduate school i wrote the other one i was 28 so i wrote one when i was about 22 23 and I was at that time doing a lot of monologues in my poetry. Mm. My poetry was, uh, I couldn't speak from my own self. So I wrote poems with other people talking oh, wow. in, in order to uncensor myself because I was going through so much drama. You know, I was, I was going through a very dark time. And uh, House, on the other hand, you know, once I started moving away from Iowa uh, and I could get a little more footing and, and a little more courage to write, uh, I still had to take that earlier voice in order to speak, and uh, you know, I, I I didn't I didn't ask so much when I was in in Greece, you know, writing chapters that I, if I would get a dream line, I would just follow it mm. and see where it took me. So I so it kind of wrote itself, you know. I I didn't know what I was writing when I began it, and then I thought, oh, this is that that funny funeral I went to when I was a child. Uh, and growing up in the house of the Tejanos, you know, I didn't realize I was going to read that, you know. And I didn't know they were like migrant mm. children when I knew them as children. It's only now that I'm an adult that I realize, oh, wait a second, that's why they didn't have any furniture. You know, mm. that, that's why. And uh, so I, I just kind of uh, inverted a little bit. They were the poor girls of the neighborhood that I was very fond of. Uh, I'm I'm fond of them still. They're my favorite characters in the book. I'm uh, based on, you know, the real Tejano girls that I knew that knew how to make something out of nothing. That was, mm. you know, they didn't have to have Barbie dolls. We 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 drew on paper bags and cut out our dolls and cut out their dresses. And we didn't have to buy anything. We made it ourselves. And that kind of richness of imagination, even though they were uh, physically poor. Uh, they were spiritually so rich, mm. and that's why I liked hanging out with them. You know, they they were girls that 
very different from other little girls I knew, and I really like hanging with them, so I'm very fond of them. They have come back, and my Lucy friend who smells like corn, you know, (laughs) in my woman hollering book, Mm -hmm. that's the same Lucy, and, you know, only this time I put them in Texas. Mm -hmm. I got to write about them in Texas, because by the time I wrote woman hollering, I was living in Texas, and I knew what it was like, and I said, oh, okay, and then I thought, no, you can't write about Lucy, you already wrote about Lucy, (laughs) but Lucy wanted, wanted to tell me more. And so, you know, I thought, okay, let's hear from Lucy and her friend who sleeps on the fold-out chair. You know, I just, you know, so sometimes, you you know, I, I, even though I've written about people, they come back. And they're always based on some reality, whether it's someone in my own life or someone I heard or, or, or people I cut and paste from several people I know in different places in my life. So when students always ask me, is this true? Did this happen to you? Like, <laughs> yes, you know, right. kind of. Right. You know, it was it'd be like if you told me a story and I took Tony's story and I took my story and my mom's story and I cut and pasted and put it all together. It's all cut and pasted from real people's lives. It didn't happen quite like that. I just made it better. You have the estedon to to pick just the essential gestures and words. I'm I'm now like you know so like when you ask me about them then in the page they're mixed up with the ones I'm creating now for the mm. opera so like you know I'm not real sure which three sisters we're talking about the one in the book or the one in my mind right. you know <laughs> and they've evolved you know <laughs> they're the same but they're they're uh they're I flesh them out a little bit more now mm. so now uh, I see them as Oaxacan women. They're women from Oaxaca that got invited to this Tejano funeral in Chicago. And they're like the women, you know, every neighborhood has the wise women that, mm-hmm. oh, call uh, Senora Maria Luisa. We have to pray a rosary. We don't know the words. So mm-hmm. Senora Maria Luisa comes over and leads the rosary and everybody repeats the words because she is the uh, preserver of the traditions. Mm. And so to me, these women are like that, you know, go call the, the Las Comadres. <laughs> we have a, we have a funeral. We need somebody who knows the words <laughs> to the, the, the rosary in Spanish. So these are the three women that come, they know how to put the cross and how to lay the copal mm-hmm. and how you they know how they have it from tradition mm-hmm. and they are walking Smithsonian's of their indigenous culture. So that's how I see them, you know, now. When I wrote the book, they were more like, you know, the tres señoras, like my, my aunties. But, uh, you know, and I had thought of them as being, you know, dressing more like the Pointer Sisters. But now <laughs> I see them with, with trenzas and repiles mm. and their handkerchief, their money in a handkerchief and their bra. And, you know, I see them more with their uh, roots to Mesoamerica. They're a little different than uh, I originally visualized them. But it's the same women. They're still the three sisters, comadres, who know what's what. This is an excerpt from a reading by Sandra Cisneros at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center as a fundraiser for the Libro Traficante Caravan as it made its stop in San Antonio. Sandra reads an excerpt from one of the vignettes from the house on Mango Street. Thank you very much, Javier. This next woman, um, 
her book came across the state, came across the stage, came across my desk while I was in the um, Dean of Academics office because I was failing almost all of my classes and had C's and D's and everything. And my academic dean actually gave me her book uh, that changed my life. I actually got 104 in her class that, that particular semester, uh, which happened to be creative writing because she forced me to be in the class because I was in so much trouble. Um, this incredible woman is Sandra Cisneros, and I feel very honored to introduce her this evening. She would like me to tell you she is not moving to New Mexico, and she is not moving to Spain, but she is moving to Mexico, and we will miss her greatly. Sandra Cisneros. Thank you. There was a family. All were little. Their arms were little, and their hands were little, and their height was not tall, and their feet very small. The grandpa slept on the living room couch and snored through his teeth. His feet were fat and doughy, like thick tamales, and these he powdered and stuffed into white socks and brown leather shoes. The grandma's feet were lovely as pink pearls and dressed in velvety high heels that made her walk with a wobble, but she wore them anyway because they were pretty. The baby's feet had ten tiny toes, pale and see-through like a salamander's, and these he popped into his mouth whenever he was hungry. The mother's feet, plump and polite, descended like white pigeons from the sea of pillow, across the linoleum roses, down, down the wooden stairs, over the chalk hopscotch squares, five, six, seven, blue sky. Do you want this? And gave us a paper bag with one pair of lemon shoes and, and one red and one pair of dancing shoes that used to be white but were now pale blue. Here, and we said, thank you, and waited until she went upstairs. Hooray, today we are Cinderella because our feet fit exactly, and we laugh at Rachel's one foot with a girl's gray sock and a lady's high heel. Do you like these shoes? But the truth is, it is scary to look down at your foot that is no longer yours and see attached a long, long leg. Everybody wants to trade the lemon shoes for the red shoes, the red for the pair that were once white but are now pale blue, the pale blue for the lemon and take them off and put them back on and keep on like this a long time till we are tired. Then Lucy screams to take our socks off and yes, it's true. We have legs, skinny and spotted with satin scars where scabs were picked, but legs all our own, good to look at and long. It's Rachel who learns to walk the best, all strutted in those magic high heels. She teaches us to cross and uncross our legs and to run like a double Dutch rope and how to walk down to the corner so that the shoes talk back to you with every step. Lucy. Rachel, me, tea-tottering like so, down to the corner where the men can't take their eyes off us. We must be Christmas. Mr. Benny, at the corner grocery, puts down his important cigar. Your mother know you got shoes like that? 
Who give you those? Nobody. Them are dangerous, he says. You girls too young to be wearing shoes like that. Take them shoes off before I call the cops. <laughs> but we just run. On the avenue, a boy on a homemade bicycle calls out, Ladies, lead me to heaven. But there is nobody around but us. Do you like these shoes? Rachel says, yes. And Lucy says, yes. And yes, I say, these are the best shoes. We will never go back to wearing the other kind again. Do you like these shoes? In front of the laundromat, six girls with the same fat face pretend we are invisible. They are the cousins, Lucy says, and always jealous. We just keep strutting. Across the street, in front of the tavern, a bum man on the stoop. Do you like these shoes? Bum man says, yes, little girl. Your little lemon shoes are so beautiful. But come closer. I can't see very well. Come closer, please. You are a pretty girl, bum man continues. What's your name, pretty girl? And Rachel says, Rachel, just like that. Now, you know to talk to drunks is crazy, and to tell them your name is worse. But who can blame her? She is young and dizzy to hear so many sweet things in one day, even if it is a bum man's whiskey word saying them. Rachel, you are prettier than a yellow taxi cab. You know that? But we don't like it. We got to go, Lucy says. If I give you a dollar, Will you kiss me? How about a dollar? I give you a dollar. And he looks in his pocket for wrinkled money. We have to go right now, Lucy says, taking Rachel's hand, because she looks like she's thinking about that dollar. <laughs> Bum man is yelling something to the air, but by now we are running fast and far away, our high heel shoes taking us all the way down the avenue and around the block, past the ugly cousins, past Mr. Benny's, up Mongo Street, the back way, just in case. Ooh, we are tired of being beautiful. Lucy hides the lemon shoes and the red shoes and the shoes that used to be white but are now pale blue under a powerful bushel basket on the back porch until one Tuesday her mother, who is very clean, throws them away. But no one complains. de respuestas con el manojo lleno y las venas abiertas vengo como un libro abierto ansiosa de aprender la historia no contada de nuestros ancestros con el viento que dejaron los abuelos y que viven cada pensamiento de esta amada tierra tierra quien sabe cuidarlo es quien de verdad la quiera vengo para mirar de nuevo para ver lo siento y despertar el ojo ciego sin miedo tú y yo Descolonicemos lo que nos enseñaron Con nuestro pelo negro, con pómulos marcados Con el orgullo indio en el alma tatuado Vengo 
con la mirada, vengo con la palabra, esa palabra hablada, vengo sin temor a no perder nada, vengo como el niño que busca de su morada, la entrada al origen, la vuelta de su cruzada, vengo a buscar la historia silenciada, la historia de una tierra saqueada. Vengo con el mundo y vengo con los pájaros, vengo con las flores y los árboles, sus cantos, vengo con el cielo y sus constelaciones, vengo con el mundo y todas sus estaciones, vengo agradecida al punto de partida, vengo con la madera, la montaña y la vida, vengo con el aire, el agua, la tierra y el fuego, vengo a mirar el mundo de nuevo. Vengo con mis ideas como escudo, con el sentir humano, a vivir este mundo, donde el hombre nuevo busca el contrapunto, vengo humano. Vengo como tú, en busca de la huella, de la pieza del árbol y de su corteza Que guarda en su memoria que el canto de victoria Cuando vimos de la tierra lloramos con tal euforia Y abrimos así nuestros brazos, tan encadilados Y nos acurrucamos al origen de los tiempos, a la fuente, el universo Donde yace el sentimiento de vivir este comienzo Vengo con la sangre roja, con los pulmones llenos de rimas en mi boca Con los ojos rasgados, con la tierra en las manos Venimos con el mundo y venimos con su canto Vengo a construir un sueño, el brillo de la vida que habita en el hombre nuevo Vengo buscando un ideal de un mundo sin clase que se pueda levantar Vengo con los pájaros, vengo con las flores y los árboles, sus cantos Vengo con el cielo y sus constelaciones Vengo con el mundo y todas sus estaciones Vengo agradecida al punto de partida Vengo con la madera, la montaña y la vida Vengo con el aire, el agua, la tierra y el fuego Vengo a mirar el mundo de nuevo KPFT listeners, this is DJ Metalord, host of Sweet Nightmares Radio Show. Sweet Nightmares Radio Show has been supporting the metal underground and everything in between from the classics to the newest releases since 1987. You can catch the show every Thursday, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. on the FM band. Also, listen to an encore presentation every Saturday. Yes, every Saturday. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the HD2 channel. Sweet Nightmares, only on 90.1 KPFT Houston. Hi, I'm Charles Hightower, host of the R&B Gold Show, 6 p.m. till 8, right here on KPFT, Houston's Community Station. I'll be moving and grooving with all the good classic soul just for you on KPFT, FM, and FM HD1 Houston.